Utah ecologist Ben Abbott told us this week the problems facing the Great Salt Lake are way easier to study than solve. And over the years, there have been all kinds of reports written about the lake, lots of data points and measurements and projections. In fact, he said you could fill the lake with all the paper from all the reports over the years. But Abbott says what most of the reports really have lacked is candor. They don't say the difficult thing. And this is why he says he was surprised by a new report released early last month from the new commissioner of the Great Salt Lake, Brian Steed. It's called the Great Salt Lake Strategic Plan, and it outlines this process to get the lake to a healthy and consistent level within 30 years. Abbott says it's honest about how we've blown it over the years, and it calls for a number of real changes, actual paradigm shifts. Yes, he told us it's another report, and it won't save the lake on its own, but he called it an inflection point, which brought to mind another real inflection point for the Great Salt Lake, the fall of 2022. The lake is not only on life support, it hasn't made it to the hospital yet. It is collapsing. The brine flies aren't there. The birds are dying. We're literally off the charts. The state has a matrix showing what adverse effects are at different elevations and we are below the lowest level. We're at a point that we didn't think the lake would ever get to. I remember attending the Great Salt Lake Watershed Symposium that fall, and presentation after presentation is basically saying the lake is dying. We're at the end, five years away from when the lake is gone. Then, two things happened. The legislature really kicked into gear. They're pushing bills around water conservation and the Great Salt Lake. Really substantive changes were made. Authorized state agencies do what you need to do to keep the lake from falling into ecological collapse. Basic assumptions about who has rights to water. This use it or lose it doctrine has basically been repealed. 4,198 feet. That is the minimum elevation. A framework for recognizing that our well-being depends on the health of the lake, of the watershed, our home. And potential disappearance of the Great Salt Lake is the existential crisis of our time. The second change was we had this bumper water year. It's been a record year for snow in Utah. Day after day, week after week, these storms hit us. It's amazing. So the, and we broke the all-time record. Uh, on the cusp of breaking a nearly century-old record, which starts back... And had this amazing amount of snow. And that was first just a completely needed infusion of fresh water to the lake. But it had really mixed effects on our emergency response. And there were some who said, you know, okay, we had an emergency plan. Thankfully, we didn't need to use it. Mother Nature helped us out here. You know, in 2023, at the end of the legislative session, I was completely despondent. Like, here is the most important environmental issue we're facing as a people. And instead of keeping our foot on the gas, we kind of said, okay, great. The lake has come up. In reality, only half of the lake had come up. 
right? The North Arm is worse now than it was then. Also, despite unprecedented snow, we only saw a modest increase in lake level. And I was very skeptical that the creation of the Great Salt Lake Commissioner's Office was going to change that calculus. I was really worried that it was greenwashing. Today, I see that really differently. A report does not on its own help the lake. But this one is different. It acknowledges how far we have to go. And it also constructs a framework that could actually get us where we need to be. Right? It's setting aside some of the actions that would not be helpful on the timescales that we need. And it's really emphasizing coordinated conservation of water, that that is the pathway forward. So hope is maybe the wrong word. I'm kind of a little bit past hope right now. This is a matter of action and acre feet. Are we going to get enough water to the lake in time to reverse its decline? Or will the lake stay perched on the edge of disappearance? This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Today in the program, we're talking about the Great Salt Lake Strategic Plan. And we should say not everyone is enthusiastic about it. Some advocates for the lake have called it vague or too broad. Someone said at best, it's a plan to prepare a plan. But the ecologist Ben Abbott thinks it actually could work. I really see this report as a departure. It's very practical. It's quite short compared mm-hmm. to some of these other documents. Which is helpful, you think? I think it's very helpful. Yeah. It's, it's got a lot less fluff in it and framing. And the most encouraging thing to me is that the content was signed off on by the highest levels of leadership in yeah. state government. It was commissioned by the legislature. It was signed off on by the governor's office and the legislature. And so I I think that we can interpret this as the plan moving forward. The Great Salt Lake Commissioner is our quarterback. Hmm. Are you also suggesting for water activists, environmental activists who have been deeply cynical and skeptical of what has happened and hasn't happened on Utah's Capitol Hill in regards to all of this, that they may – want to sort of hold back at least, keep their powder dry for a moment, not be a skeptical for a moment and actually see something and even say something good about a report like this. I think that one of the most helpful actions that could be taken right now is for those of us advocating for the rescue of Great Salt Lake realize that this isn't an opportunity. Hmm. This is – um, a wagon that I think that we should get behind and put our shoulder to the wheel on. Now, now, if we see that this isn't actually going in the right direction, then we may need to go back to some of the more adversarial tactics. But if we can set aside our egos and even some of the past hurts and betrayals, right? I, I, I understand on both sides people feeling a real lack of trust here. And so can we take a step of faith? Hmm. You told us that as far as uh, this report is concerned that – or maybe any report, that you've got data, you've got the implications of data. But then there's the thing that's allowed to be said. And it sounds like what you're saying is the thing that needs to be said is being said. Mm -hmm. But, But what is that? What is the thing that's not allowed to be said? So it's been really hard in the past to acknowledge that there are physical limits to our watershed. There's been huge resistance to saying we have a set amount of water. Um, Why? Because that's going to limit our ability 
to grow? That's right. Yeah. It, 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 for some people, it's wrapped up in an acknowledgement that we don't have complete control mm-hmm. over our environment. Mm-hmm. We can't rewrite the laws of hydrology. And this report is really quite clear. Now, there still are descriptions of, of efforts such as cloud seeding or pipelines that may become important down the road. But those are really in the bin of things that happen when we're in a, in a better position. You know, they're not going to help over the next five or even 10 years. The only thing that can move the needle, and this is, I think, channeling the real message of this report, is us using less water. And thankfully, there's huge room for improvement there, right? We know many of the tools that will work um, that can cost effectively ensure that there is water for development. I, I mean, one of the one of the really deep myths that people on all sides believe is that the Great Salt Lake is declining because of population growth. Yeah. And if we look at peak consumptive water use, that happened in the early 2000s. We've actually gone down since that time while the state population has nearly doubled over the same time period. And so, again, those of us on the left maybe stop saying this is because of the new subdivision. Those of us on the right recognize that the pathway to continued growth, whether that's in population or economy, is through recognizing that there are limits and achieving water security by living within our means. Does the report say what happened to the lake? Does it come right out and say this is why that lake is in its Condition. It does. So and what is it? There are two main factors. Uh, the first one is unsustainable water use. And this is really interesting. It, it's not laid out in these terms in the report, but we actually have about a century of sustainable water use in the state's recent history. Right? If we look f- since the colonial period, the arrival of the pioneers, f- about 100 years the lake was in okay shape and that water use was sustainable. It was during the mid-1900s when these large federally subsidized dam and pipeline projects were built that we exceeded that capacity and we shifted the lake into structural decline. We created an artificial surplus of water and we didn't have some of the cultural framework that had been very powerful before that made sure to limit the amount of water that was being used for different crops, right? I don't think – actually, I've never thought of this before, but I don't think that Brigham Young would have signed off on subsidized alfalfa alfalfa that then isn't supporting local food security but that's being exported to different regions, Mm -hmm. right? So we had these shifts, artificial surplus, a weakening of some of those cultural norms that had been quite strong on, on controlling water use and that's what shifted us into this place. So number one driver of the decline of Great Salt Lake is unsustainable water use. That's 80 to 85% of the problem. Now, the, the, the remainder is that we are in a new situation regarding climate. And uh, if we're looking into the, the next couple of decades, we are probably facing a 15% decline in the amount of runoff. That's with no change to human consumption patterns. So this is a new reality. The report brings up multiple times. Look, when we have higher temperatures, that increases the amount of evapotranspiration from the watershed, and it's going to make it harder to even maintain the lake where it is today. Do you agree with what – what the report says is that it wants to – there's a sort of this target timeline, 30 years. Yeah. That we're going to accomplish this sustainable – level for the lake within 30 years. And here are the steps to get us there. Now, first of all, do you agree with that? Do you think 30 years seems like a proper kind of timeline? 
Yeah, I see the 30-year timeline as a political concession, to, huh. be, to be frank, yeah. right? So the faster you want to refill the lake, the more water conservation you need. And so one way of arriving at a scientifically correct number that's within the realm of current political um, – what's politically acceptable yeah. is to extend that timeline out. So no, I mean – You don't necessarily agree with it, but you're saying it's probably wise. Uh, no, I don't, I, I don't agree with it and I don't think that it's adequate at all. Right. But it's a concession you can sort of live with because well, it's a political reality. Well, I actually think that the timeline is the easiest thing to change huh. in our in our rescue plan. Hmm. Right. So if we know what we need to be doing, uh, we need to be decreasing the amount of agricultural water consumption, urban water consumption. We need to be coming yeah. up with new ways of getting minerals out of the lake. So as long as we're doing all of that stuff, we can argue about the timeline later. That's right. Once we get to yeah. 500,000 acre feet of yeah. water saved, then yeah. we recognize, OK, let's take the next step to 750 and then to a million where we really need to be. So f- for me, if, if, uh, if you had a health problem, and your doctor said, OK, well, let's get you on a gradual plan to get back to health within 30 years. I don't think you'd say, OK, great. Yeah. You'd say, no, what can I do to accelerate yeah. that? And it's really important. One of the, the, the crucial things that this report does is it establishes a target range for Great Salt Lake. And again, getting back to the advocacy community, this is something we were clamoring for last year. And, and we here didn't it get is. It. Here it is. Huh. Yeah. Let's celebrate that, recognize that, and then say let's move toward that range as fast as we can. Tell us what the range is. The range is 4198 to 4205. This is always in terms of feet above sea level. Yeah. And this has, again, been established by literal decades of research and conversation, thinking about the economic, ecological, cultural importance of the lake. Wait, um, OK. So put that in perspective. I, I don't want people's eyes to glaze over when we talk about numbers. Yeah. 4,198 and 4,205. That's, yeah. the, that's the range. That's, where, that's kind of the sweet spot where we want to be. That's right. Where are we now? We are, if you take the average lake elevation, around 4,192, right? And that's higher than we were in 2022 yeah. when we were at 4,188, so 10 feet below right. the lake's lowest. At 10 feet. And so there is a, a long way to go. And I think it's important to recognize, you know, if you're thinking about a target cholesterol level, yeah. you don't want to be right on the edge. Yeah. And so at 4198, that's the edge. That's the edge. Yeah. Uh, half of the hot spots that are producing toxic dust are still exposed at that level. Wow. And so we really need to be thinking about 4200 near the upper part of that range. That's where we want to be. Um, now, th- I said before that the 30-year timeline was was solely a political concession. That's probably not correct. They're also – this is a huge technical and legal lift. Mm-hmm. No one has – Because why? Because you have to look at the chunks that it's going to require, the water that's going to be required each year to get that's there, right. right? Yes. And there's uncertainty as far as what the weather is going to do, yeah. right? We've had last year, record year. This year looks like it might be average. Well, these patterns of a couple or a few wet years tend to come on decadal cycles. Yeah. So it might be another 12 years before we get something like this. And and that that really is effectively emphasized in this report. The years that are most important to conserve water are the wet years. Hmm. Right. If you reduce human water consumption in a drought year, you might only get an, an extra 200,000 acre feet to the lake. Yeah. Last year, if we hadn't refilled 
the reservoirs to their max capacity, 1.6 million acre-feet would have flowed to Great Salt Lake, right? Mm -hmm. It would have gotten us a third of the way back to where we need to be in a single year. And so this year is going to be really crucial. Can we get the water to the lake? Ben Abbott, he's an associate professor of plant and wildlife sciences at Brigham Young University. What does the report say about actually getting the water to the lake? Like, be really specific. Yeah. The report lists these annual water conservation targets. Mm -hmm. It lists this um, quantification for the amount of conservation. It talks about these trigger levels. But I don't want to confuse people who are trying to sort of work through this as they're listening to it. Yeah. What, what, is, what does the report actually say? about what needs to be done to get water into the lake. Yeah, so the the report breaks down kind of the portfolio of current consumptive use and it's three categories, agricultural, municipal and industry, mineral extraction. So th- those are the three buckets that we're yeah. that we're trying to shrink so that more water can flow to the lake. We agriculture need, is the most. Agriculture is the most. Yeah. Two-thirds or more right. is is agricultural. And so the report proposes a series of kind of pilot programs and actions for this year. And that's another thing that I appreciated about the report. It's split into short-term, medium-term, and Mm long-term actions. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes you read these things and it's kind of eventually we'd like to be in a good place. And here there are concrete steps that can be taken this year. So, for example, we need to we need to figure out if these if this concept of water markets is going to work. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. that's a that's an unknown. Right. We, we don't have examples elsewhere where they have worked. If they do, they're a super efficient market-driven way of getting water to the lake. So basically, if I am reducing the amount of water I'm using to irrigate my alfalfa field, then I can benefit economically by leasing that water to the state or even donating it to the state. For example, there's this – I hadn't heard it before. Um, if you made a permanent donation of water to Great Salt Lake, maybe you could get a long-term tax benefit from that. Right? This is the kind of creative thinking of how can we incentivize and accelerate the conservation of water. And that's crucial because the gut punch of the whole report, I think, is the assessment of how far along we are. Hmm. Right? We, we've come light years in changing the law, in reorganizing agencies, and we haven't even started when it comes to getting water to the lake. Right? We're, we're maybe 6 percent of the way there based on how much we know we've conserved versus how far – we have to go. And and so that – Wait. So you're saying that we're prepping the ground for this to happen. Yes. But as of yet, there's not a drop that's headed into the lake. Not a drop is maybe a little bit too strong. Yeah. <laughs> but only 6 percent of the drops okay. have gotten there. Okay. And, and a lot of that is we're, – we're so far early on that like – you can actually look back and say, okay, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints gives 20,000 acre feet. That's one of the big drops. Mm-hmm. The Great Salt Lake Watershed Enhancement Trust was mm-hmm. created. Mm-hmm. But we really – if any lawmakers or managers are thinking we're really far along that path, please read the report and look. I mean even including the turf removal programs, right? We're talking about not thousands or tens of thousands of acre feet saved. We're talking about hundreds of acre feet saved. 
in, wow. in the report. So th- I don't and we say, need hundreds of thousands. We, we of need a million, a million, right? Yeah, we need a million saved. Um, Every year. Every year we need a million more acre feet yeah. that's going to the lake. And so the uh, – and more of that's going to come in the wet years, less in the, the dry years. But the uh, I, I think that that also emphas- uh, or puts into context this this timeline. So 30 years sounds like forever. On the other hand, if we keep on just nibbling at the edges of this and having incremental change, then that will be a real stretch. And, and that is not what we need, right? There's a real scenario where this is the last bundle of wet years that we get. It's, it's, it's our opportunity right now to stabilize the lake. And if we miss it, then it doesn't matter how hard we push on the conservation knob. It doesn't matter how hard we push on building a pipeline from the Snake River, right? Because the whole region's being impacted by these climatic changes. And so there's no chance that we get water from them, even if we had a pipeline in that scenario. There's a... Um a state lawmaker, Senator Scott Sandel, he's in, in Tremont. And he's raised this interesting, I guess, concern about conservation. He said that he's worried if you rely too much on conservation, it could backfire, it could cause a problem. If that's all you have to rely on is conservation and people don't or aren't, then what do you do? I think that's what he's trying to say in essence. He said if we – here's what he actually said. If we harden our system through conservation, we will be short-sighted completely. And I think what he's getting at is something you referred to just briefly a moment ago, which is pipelines, cloud seeding, other kinds of things. So what do you make of that kind of reaction and how much does the – report itself account for ideas like that some lawmakers and we should say Senator Sandel has been really instrumental in passing a lot of legislation related to yeah. to, to he, he is very much concerned and mm-hmm. very much engaged in it but but what do you make of that that part of the of the what seems to be the kind of heading us towards a sort of political debate in some way yeah i i love that fear of hardening the system hmm. so Conservation is the opposite of hardening. Conservation is based on behavior and policy, not on hard path engineering infrastructure, right? When you build a dam, you're locked into that infrastructure, right? It takes a long time to build a huge outlay of resources. On the other hand, if we find down the road, hey, we conserved 10% more than we needed to, guess what? You can just conserve a little bit less. You can say, all right, hey, leave your sprinklers on longer, right? And so if we look at global water security, places with fewer water resources than we have here who have managed to establish the food security, the economic security, the ecological health through proper water management, conservation is always the first piece. And if we look at Agricultural optimization is maybe going to have a 15 percent decrease. Uh, If we start looking at more advanced things like transitioning to other crops, using agrivoltaics, so having solar panels in some of these fields, creating economic stability and reducing water use, then we we absolutely can get to the 30 to 50 percent reduction in water use that we need. Do you think if we could get this right, we could get the lake – to a regular, healthy, sustainable level. When you look at that report, does that seem like we could do this? One of the really interesting dimensions of the plan is they bring up these water conservation targets. The state for a long time has said by 2060, we want to have decreased individual water use by X percent, right? 
in this plan, they say, we're going to take those 2060 goals and bring them up to 2040, right? So we've accelerated that conservation timeline by two decades. We can do the same thing with this plan. Hmm. So it provides the right framework, I believe, to get us there. We, we now need to supercharge it, right? We need to make sure that it is not limited by personnel or by finances. This would be the biggest tragedy of our generation if we didn't rescue Great Salt Lake because of a few millions or tens of millions of dollars, right? Hmm. Not only can we save the lake, we have to save the lake. This, this is absolutely non-negotiable. And, and we are underestimating how hard this is going to be, right? Whole governments, countries have tried to do this and failed. So we are trying to solve an unsolved ecological crisis in record time. And so it's going to be harder than we anticipate. But this report demonstrates that our leaders want to do this. And so let's take them at their word. Let's thank them and let's work together to make it a reality. Ben Abbott, thank you very much. Thank you, Doug. That's the ecologist Ben Abbott. He's in the Plant and Wildlife Sciences Department at Brigham Young University. Utah's first Great Salt Lake Commissioner is Brian Steed. Lawmakers created the position last year, and earlier this month, Steed released a 30-year plan for the lake. We've been talking about it today. Ben Abbott told us he sees all the reports that have been prepared about the lake as this mix of scientific and political reality. And it was in that intersection of policy and politics that we began our conversation with Commissioner Steed. So I got this undergraduate degree in political science. I ended up getting a master's degree in political science as well. I thought hmm. I was going to study natural resources in, in Latin America. Wow. That's what I thought I was going to do. Uh, it turns out I got home from that experience and realized I knew by far more about environmental law in Costa Rica than I knew about stuff here in the United States. Huh. And so I ended up going and getting a law degree from the University of Utah and focusing on, on natural resources, environmental law. I practiced law for a few years, and that didn't feel like the right thing to do. And so I ended up going back to school and going to Indiana University and working with this lovely lady by the name of Eleanor Ostrom and working on natural resources management issues, right? And that's that's what we were focusing on. And it turned out to be a very rewarding experience. Uh, incidentally, she won the Nobel Prize in economics in wow. 2009, which was complete dumb luck on my part. But what she studies is this kind of – the situation where you have – Lots of different uh, demands on a resource and how you coordinate the uses on that resource so the resource can survive over long time horizons. So your question's interesting because I never intended to be the commissioner of the Great Salt Lake. It's not what I set out to do, but I've, I've had these really unique experiences all along the way to be able to be in a position to where I think I can, I can do something special. And I, I love that. When did you first start to pay attention to – Great Salt Lake in the sense of when did you start thinking about it with the, you know, the degrees that you had, the background that you had, resources, how you manage resources? When did you start putting all of that together? I I imagine, of course, it was long before you 
we're in this position. But when did you start putting it all together? So, so it's interesting. It's something we've been watching for some time. Huh. And it's interesting because, like I said, I studied these, what they call them, common pool resource dilemmas, or sometimes more common common dilemmas, right? And yeah. when you look at that, and each individual actor has their own incentives, and when they play to their own incentives, then it's to the detriment of all the actors involved. And so <clears throat> the Great Salt Lake is one of those classic commons dilemma situations. And so I was aware of it in that sense. But it wasn't really until I got to the state as the director of the Department of Natural Resources that I became acutely aware of the consequences of a failing lake. And what I mean by that is that it's kind of in your face. We have these satellite images over time that you can run and just see this, you know, declining resource. And then when you start to counter, you know, and count the things that the Great Salt Lake does for us, it becomes a really important resource that sometimes we as Utahns have taken for granted because mm-hmm. it's always been there. Now that we know all that it provides for us, I think that everyone has to sit up and take notice of how special it is and how unique a resource it is and how awful it would be if we lost it. I want to ask about the plan itself. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about how it came about and what you wanted for it. Like what were the principles you you wanted when you set out to – create this. There have been a lot of reports, a lot of them about that lake. Uh, um, And so what did you want that you thought might be different or distinct or in particular for this one? So a little history on that. This is the product of a newly created position called the Great Salt Lake Commissioner. That's something that was created during last year's legislative session. And the intent behind that, that it was to kind of unify the state's focus on on the various things we've got going on. And when you look at that, we've had a lot of activities on the Great Salt Lake, a lot of governance trying to save the Great Salt Lake or promote its future. The problem is a lot of times that wasn't as coordinated as, as well as it could be. And so in looking at that, they said, hey, what we really need is to create essentially a quarterback position to direct those efforts. As part of that same legislation, they said, hey, what the commissioner then needs to do is come up with a strategy that is essentially state policy about then what do we do and what can we do to save this really important resource. And so what we wanted to do is come up with something actionable that we could actually do over the next, you know, however long that we need to, to save the lake. And that's something that I think that people have to understand that we got in this mess over a lot of years. It's going to take us a lot of years to get out of that mess. But what we do actually does matter and we can have an impact. We spoke with uh, BYU professor Ben Abbott who – you know, he talked about being skeptical at first about the role of the commissioner and you know, another report or another plan. But he was really complimentary and one of the things he said was that the report, rather than just sort of patting ourselves on the back, which he says he's seen in a lot of other – uh, plans or reports. And rather than just saying everything's going to be fine, he said this report is really candid and it says that in order to get to this you know, sustainable level for the lake, uh, there's going to have to be real change or what the professor said, a real paradigm shift. Is he, is he right? Is there, is there contained in that report something that might be unique in that sense? Like this things have to absolutely change and let's lay out what they are. I think that's absolutely accurate. And and I appreciate that uh, Ben's saying nice things about it. It's obviously on a report like this, you know there's going to be a diversity of opinions on yeah. it. And also let me say this. We know that the plan has to be iterative. We know it has to be adaptive. We know that it, it's not going to be all the solutions all at once. Yeah. But we need to start moving. 
And to the point of a paradigm shift, we really have to start doing things differently than we have done, realizing that the lake requires water. And for a lot of times, for a lot of our history, we've just decided, hey, whatever water gets to the lake dies there, yeah. right? And there's still some Utahns that feel that way. I think that's an increasingly smaller population, though, because we see the benefits coming off the lake. But in order to save that much water, in order to make sure that the lake has the water it needs, we are going to have to make a collective effort, that it's not going to happen on its own. And yes, good years like last year and hopefully a good year like this year are going to make a big difference. But we also have to be realistic and say that we really do need to have an intentional effort on saving water and then applying that water to the areas that are that it that it's needed to go, like the Great Salt Lake. You said we have to do things differently. Like what? So first of all, I think that we have oftentimes taken for granted that we have to use everything to exhaustion, <laughs> right? This paradigm has started to shift in Utah. Yeah. I mean, over the last two legislative sessions, it's been remarkable to see how many laws have changed. Water law, by its nature, is always it's glacier-esque. It moves very, very slowly. Yeah. People like to have that stability in water. We've had something like 60 pieces of legislation that make substantive changes, including broadening out what we consider to be positive use or beneficial use, right? And one of those things is kind of broadening out our definition of, of in-stream flows. Hmm. We need to now execute on that and make sure that we are able to then go into a Agreements with the people that have the water, whether that's farmers and ranchers or whether that's municipal and industrial uh, folks, and make sure that when we save water that we can then apply that water to the lake. It's going to take different market transactions than we've ever been engaged in on, on the water side because for a long time we just assumed the lake would take care of itself. We now know that we probably have a big impact on the lake, and because of that we need to then make, make getting water to the lake our priority. I wonder, was there anything in the report – did it tell you something you didn't already know or that you already had a hunch about? Was there any surprise in there at all? So uh, I think in doing the math, yeah. I think was was surprising on how much water we're in deficit huh. as well as how much water it's going to take over the time frame. I mean, what we find in the report, it's going to take an additional delivery of 471,000 acre feet per year on an average year. Right? But, and but go, say in a drought year, it's yeah, a million, in a right? drought year, it's bigger than that, yeah. right? And yeah. so you've got to average out these things. And, and granted, last year was not an average year, so we were able to deliver more than that. For sure. And this year, hopefully, it's more than that. But we're going to have to figure out how to make up that deficit. And that means really a pretty substantial change in how we use water. From And, and if you look at those real numbers in terms of how much water is used in the basin, it may be as much as like 20, 25 percent hmm. reduction. And that means we have to conserve more. And whether you're a farmer or a rancher, whether you're someone like me that doesn't have a farm or a ranch, but I have some grass in front of my house, yeah. I've got to make sure that I am treating the water as responsibly as it needs to be treated. Start with the agriculture part, though. You're saying we, there needs to be conservation on the part of agriculture. This is one of those really complicated questions. Um, and how much of this is voluntary? Yeah. How much do you sort of negotiate? How much can you impose in the way of legal mandates? All of those kinds of things. And is there a recognition, at least on your part, that this is, yes, we have to take care of lawns and industries apart and so is you know, all the residential, but agriculture is a big chunk. And, and, and it is a big chunk. Yeah. When you look at the actual numbers, it's uh, over or, or upwards of 70 yeah. percent of the water being used. And, and that may be more of a statewide number. It, it varies on how you look at it, but sure. it's, it's a pretty sizable chunk of water. When you look at how that water is being used, it's actually being used in ways that we all 
kind of rely on, whether that's through the open space that ag provides or through the economic benefit it provides in many rural areas of the state. And the good news is that you can do things differently. The good news is that there are water-saving mechanisms you can apply, and the state has been very aggressive over the last two years or so trying to promote what they call agricultural optimization, trying to get as much water savings through technological adaptations as possible. We may need more water than that, and if that's the case, we probably need to start doing more market transactions. You say uh, we may need more water than that. We we probably do, oh, sure. don't we? Yeah. So, and, and sorry for for couching it. No, you, I, I was going to say, you, you, you definitely do, right? Yeah. I mean, and this is – well, keep going. Sorry. So, you're great. Yeah. So, so, so absolutely. And so we got to be mindful of how much water we need and how we're going to get it. Yeah. If we look at, say, water rights holders – the vast majority are agricultural producers. We probably need to enter into exchanges with them. Yeah. Those exchanges I – mean, and you asked if it should be mandatory or voluntary. These are voluntary we, now. We need to start it to be voluntary. Yeah. I think if things were to progress and to get worse, there are regulatory mechanisms mm-hmm. that I think we'd like to avoid, yeah. honestly, because we live in a conservative state. And as a conservative state, people are going to take umbrage with the notion of the heavy hand of government coming in and forcing you. If we are able, though, to do the right things through market transactions, and that means – I will pay a farmer or a rancher or the commission's office or or the Grace Holly Trust or whomever will pay a farmer or a rancher for a split season lease. And that means let's say you grow – you know, uh, let's say alfalfa because that's one of the things that people frequently hear about. Yep. You normally get four cuts of alfalfa a year and let's let's say that – Take two. If, if we're to take two, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's a split season lease and mm-hmm. then we just are able to apply that water to the Great Salt Lake. Similarly, we will be looking at seasonal leases, which – Alfalfa is, is a unique crop because oftentimes it doesn't need to be replowed and replanted, but it, occasionally it does. Wouldn't it be awesome if it's a five-year rotation to say, listen, we'll pay you not to farm for the next year and we'll save that water for the Great Salt Lake? And those are the types of market transactions we're starting to look at. Our farmers have – I don't know if you floated any of the ideas in particular and our, have farmers been receptive? I, I think it depends. I think it's still yeah. a pretty early idea and and – some farmers and ranchers are more so than others. Yeah. These types of programs have been tried in other parts of the state, namely uh, on the Colorado River Basin area, and there's been uh, a number of participants. I think that it will catch on as soon as people realize this is not a grab of water, but rather another way you can commoditize the things that you have, yeah. right? And farmers are really good at managing commodities. It's what they're what they excel at. If water is considered one of those commodities, I think that we can get there in a much quicker way. You have to get them to trust you. Totally agree. And that's yeah. and that's part of the hard thing because I think that there is oftentimes this kind of perception of it's us versus them. And I guess my job as the commissioner is to convince all of us it's us because all of us have something to lose and all of us have something to gain. So one of the things the report does is it lays out this ideal range for the lakes ecosystem, mm-hmm. you know, the, 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 the sweet spot sure. for, for, for elevation uh, between 4,198 feet above sea level and 4,205 feet. Like that's the yep. sweet spot. And then it also talks about the report. So that's where we need to be. And as, as the, the report lays out, it's going to take something like – upwards of a million acre feet of extra water in drought years. It's going to take about 470,000 acres or something like that in, mm-hmm. in, in, in normal years, whatever normal is these days. Yeah, exactly. um, but I guess my question is, what if you don't get there? 
So because you, you have these trigger levels. So what happens? What and and if it's if it's all voluntary at this yeah. point, if you're trying to, you know, make these exchanges voluntary and get work on the sort of goodwill and good faith of people, how are you going to get to those trigger levels? So I think it's a good question. Uh, let's talk about the lake levels generally and how we that sweet spot was identified. Yeah. Back in 2013, the division that manages the bed of the lake, they're called Forestry, Fire, and State Lands, went and did this a comprehensive study to say, hey, what happens at different lake levels? Yeah. And they identified that at different lake levels, you have different both ecological benefits or costs as well as human benefits or costs. Hmm. I mean, think about this in terms of you know, you have more dust exposed. Yeah. Or if you're a mineral company at a lower level, it costs more to pump water up, right? And so there's this sweet spot to where we know the lake functions best ecologically and for the human demands that are on the lake. Right. That sweet spot is 4198 above sea level. And thanks for clarifying that that's the number above sea level. People frequently think that's the depth of the lake. And no, it's a very shallow lake. <laughs> very shallow, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so it's important that we get there. Now, if we get below that level, we start to see a diminished amount of benefits and increased numbers of costs. And as we drop even further still, we start to see what we, well, I'll just say it's scary conditions on the lake. Yeah. And what we started to see in the end of 2022 is we saw salinity levels spike on the south arm of the Great Salt Lake. And that means that ecological productivity, brine shrimp and brine flies and all the, all the stuff that things rely on as they fly through, it starts to tank, yeah. right? And and when you look at the no, the numbers that were being produced at that time of brine flies, it was almost zero. And brine shrimp were having a tough time reproducing because salinity levels were so high. That could be really problematic. Yeah. So so on on that regard, we're very concerned about you know the various species that rely on it. Incidentally, there are three species that I think that we monitor more closely than others on bird species that might be impacted <laughs> if those conditions were to go south. And there are federal regulatory mechanisms like the Endangered Species Act that might come to bear unless we figure that out. So we know that there are problems as it gets lower. And then we see problems with dust as well, right? right? What we identified in the report is we really need to set a floor. Not only do we need to set a target for where we, we get to, we need to set a floor because we know – when we get to that area, that problems start to happen, right. and they're pretty severe problems for all of us. And so that that in our in in the the plan it said at forty one ninety above sea level, we were pretty close to that. When uh, we got down to where we were in the lows at, at the end of twenty twenty two, we hope never to repeat that again. Yeah. And so we are currently working with the state legislature to identify what those triggers might look like. Uh, my guess is uh, we are trying to put well. well, well I can tell you with certainty that we're trying to put real teeth in to make sure that, that people understand that we have to start doing things dramatically differently under those levels. And to, to date, we've seen some buy-in from legislative leadership trying to get those levels in place. Yeah, but what happens? What do you do when you get to so I think the that trigger? What, when we, there's a trigger, you don't get enough. There's well, what happens. Well, what? one, I think that we have to start looking at how much water we're diverting out of the lake at that point. So mm-hmm. mineral companies probably have to take less water at that point, And that's something that, that is going to – you know, be problematic for them, yeah. but it's necessary. And then in addition to that, we know that there are there's a causal relationship between how much water we use and how much water gets to the lake. Mm-hmm. We would very much like to see more teeth to where people then – there are man, mandatory outcomes when we don't meet those levels. You're talking about conservation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like what? So, so, like what would be one? So, for, for instance, uh, you, you can't. You can only water your lawn once. A correct. Week. That that sort of thing. Yeah. Right. Right. And and if that's the case, I know nobody likes that. Yeah. But hate it. But but it's also the reality that we have. And if we have a dying lake, I think that decision is taken from us. I think it's put into either a court 
or put into the hands of, of a federal agency, hmm. both of which I know locals will find appalling. Let's not do that to ourselves. Let's figure out a way to avoid it. One of the things you've talked about is that you're going to have to balance the, you know, the necessities of the lake along with the economics, which you've talked about. But all of that also with the political feasibility. So let me ask you about that. What do you mean by the political feasibility? How are you thinking about the politics of all of this? How is it, what are you noticing so far, I guess, in your job? So I think it's a, it's a good question. I wish I had a better answer. I, I would say this. One of the things that frequently happens when we discuss natural resources is people will say something like, wouldn't it be neat if we could just – and whatever that just is, right? In, in some cases, uh, I've been told, hey, we should just stop every alfalfa farmer from farming alfalfa, okay? And I just don't believe that's political reality right now in our state. Hmm. Now, if we were forced in horrible circumstances, there, that there may become mechanisms at some point, but right now, we're so far away from that, that, that to, even to, to say that's what we're going to pursue – it's not politically feasible. Because the low-hanging fruit is there. Exactly. What do you worry about most right now in terms of the, the condition of the lake? Is it dust? I think dust, I think, is, is going to be the hardest one to solve right. uh, because when you have an exposed lake bed that weathers over time, which has happened over years, it, you see additional dust days and you see problems with PM2.5 and PM10 that we know are regulated and we know that we've had a problem with yeah. here along the Wasatch Front especially. And so – and why I say that, I think it's a little easier to manage the salinity concerns because mm-hmm. you can actually – the lake right now is is the north arm and the south arm and you can actually keep more water in the south arm and mix that water in a little more and you have lower salinity. It doesn't solve the dust problem. Right. What solves the dust problem is either you're going to have hardened infrastructure out there like you've seen in Owens Lake and other places. Expensive. Very expensive. I mean – the state uh, legislative audit general came out with a report just last year that said they think it's at least $1.5 billion in infrastructure. That's billion with a B plus an additional $15 million per year just to maintain that. And if you look at Owens Lake as, as say, that's what will happen, $1.5 billion may be low, yeah. right? And so, so that's a very costly alternative. So we really do need to focus on getting – the lowest cost alternative right now is getting water to the lake and making sure that we can wet those dry grounds – frequently so that they can develop that that crust that then keeps that dust in place. You have said that we need to focus more on how we grow as a state. And this almost seems like the third rail in in politics. When you talk about the sacred principle of growth, what do you mean when you say we need to focus on growth? Will we get to the point as as a culture and as a state where we acknowledge water as a limiting factor in terms of the actual number of houses we can build in certain places. So I, I don't know that we'll we'll get to the point where we realize that water is a limiting factor. What I will say is water has to be influential in how we grow. Hmm. And what I mean by that is there was a time when we could all live on quarter acre lots replete with the Kentucky bluegrass to the heart's content. And there was a surplus of water to meet that. Uh, we are not living in that time anymore. We are seeing that when we try to keep the grass green on those size lots and, and some are larger, that we end up having scarcity issues. And those scarcity issues, I don't think are going away in the short term. And so as we grow, how we grow matters. And you can do two things. You can grow with houses that are by far more water resilient, 
water savings. And you can grow in a way that then we say, hey, we're not going to build houses like we used to build houses. We're going to have more water-efficient landscaping. We're going to have those things. And, and interestingly, when you look at that trend, you can do a lot with the same amount of water that we're receiving now. And it doesn't, it's not that limiting factor. But if we, if we continue doing exactly what we have done for the last 20 years, then it does become a limiting factor. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I, I think, interestingly, when you look at the water use over time, since the 1980s, municipal and industrial water use has been relatively flat as a percentage of, of water being used in the Great Salt Lake. What's fascinating about that, we've had a huge growth in population yeah. over that same time frame. So people can adapt. And, and have been. Still, and and have been. Huh. And, and I think we still need to be even more adaptive and more mindful of, of those things going forward. Final question. Can we get to a point of sustainability before 30 years? That's the scope, 30 years. But do you think we can get there sooner? Yeah, I do. Really? And, and, I, and I also believe that we're going to have the eyes of the world on us whether that's through the Olympics or otherwise, where people are going to expect us to have solved this problem. And I do think that we can get to a much better place. Now, are we saying to 4198? I sure hope so. But consider this. Let's say we get to 4197 right now. We're in such a better spot there than where we currently sit. I'm optimistic that we can make a real difference. And I wouldn't be doing this job if I didn't feel that way. Commissioner Steed, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Brian Steed, he's Utah's Great Salt Lake Commissioner and the Executive Director of the Janet Quinney Lawson Institute for Land, Water, and Air at Utah State University. Radio West is a production of KUER. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. If you have ideas or comments or feedback, you can email them at radiowest at KUER.org. Thanks this week to Courtney Clark and Dane Christensen, the program produced by Benjamin Bombard and Tim Slover. Kerry Watson is our executive producer. I'm Doug Fabrizio.